Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 1st, 2022. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Christine Rosen is out this week. Joining us today, tech commentary columnist, magazine editing veteran, and all-around great guy with his own podcast, the name of which, as always, when I start saying someone else has another podcast, I can't remember their name. We have the most generic podcast name you could possibly have, right? Your commentary right. magazine podcast. It's like lame. It's like just there to talk to say commentary magazine. But Jim, you actually have an interestingly named podcast. So of course I can't remember. Yeah, it's the name it, it. it's how do we fix it? I'm the co-host. But we discovered after we launched it that of course if you Google how do we fix it, you get a lot of plumbing repair and you know other yes. things. Or when people hear that I used to be editor of popular mechanics, they assume this is about how to, you know, um, you know, fix your car's fix exhaust your system or something. Yeah, right. Okay. So how do we fix it? Jim Meggs, James B. Meggs tech commentary columnist. Hi, Jim. Great to be back. Okay. Um, so Jim, as our, as our resident, um, journalistic fact finding expert, uh, on the pandemic from the outset of the pandemic, uh, I actually, one thing I wanted to mention, I'm calling an audible cause we didn't mention this beforehand. Um, so Jim, your best writing, has been on the lab leak hypothesis about the origins of COVID and the efforts to suppress it and the citizen investigations that that kept the idea alive. And uh, uh, once again, the science community has struck back with two papers in uh, science uh, claiming a natural claiming that uh, the study of studies that they've done uh, returns us to the natural origin, no, excuse me, not the natural origins theory of the virus's creation or whatever, but the idea that it spread from the Wuhan wet market, which is, I don't know, three or four blocks away from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, and that somehow it did come from somebody eating a bat at the Wuhan <laughs> wet market. Um, I haven't read these things because I wouldn't be able to make head or tail of them if I had, but it really does, based on what I've been reading, um, this is yet another effort by a kind of scientific establishment to fight back against an idea that they don't like in part because it's not their idea. I don't know if I'm going to attribute motives to the scientists okay. who who did this study, but I looked at it. It's a the the Wuhan market study specifically. It's a statistical analysis of where the early cases came from and the two different I believe it was two different strains that emerged very early in the pandemic, which ones were in the market, which ones were associated with the market, which ones weren't, with a lot of mapping of the city geographically to see how closely these people lived in proximity to the market and other things. And from that, they they reaffirmed an old and I think rushed conclusion that, that the illness must have come from some kind of animal trade in the market. There were some wild animals of different sorts being being sold there. But 
then it makes the jump to infer that one of those animals must be the natural reservoir source of the virus, but they never, they haven't found the animal. They haven't found the, they didn't find it in the, you know, anything related to the market. They haven't gone back to any of the farms where these, uh, these animals are raised or the, the, the wild animal traders. So it seems to me that you can't reach a conclusion until you actually do find the source. You can't just say, well, it looks like it was probably here because one person who was infected, who infected somebody in the market, who worked in the market and spread it around, or the two strains got spread around the market, is you know, a highly plausible uh, possibility, even if statistically, you know, if one thing's 70% likely and one thing's 30% likely, that doesn't mean the 30% likely thing didn't happen. So I'm, I'm not contesting the statistical strength of their analysis, but I'm waiting for something that feels a lot more solid before I weigh in on, on this. I still think that whether or not the virus came from the lab, the fact that the, the scientists and journalists were, were so strongly discouraged from dis from discussing it that social media and and mainstream news out outlets suppressed it they called it a conspiracy theory that's bad for science and that's bad for journalism regardless of what the final answer is here i'm um i i find it very difficult to deal with the logic of some of these in other words like you do all this geolocation uh, you know, uh, mapping physical, this physical, that, um, as you sort of in, as you suggest, none of that gets to origins because how, how would there be a thing that happened in a very specific place that seems to have no, uh, trace something where you can trace it backwards beyond where it exploded. Um, like, in other words, if there was a bat and somebody ate the bat and that caused COVID, where did the bat come from? How, why did this bat and no other bats that we are aware of have this variant of a, of a coronavirus in its body just by happenstance and it was captured and it was sold at this market and then you have this just 800 pound gorilla three blocks away where they're doing research on coronaviruses in bats it just logic presumes that the coincidence of these two things it may be coincidence it may not be coincidence the notion that you would simply accept as dogma that it was wildly coincidental is a is a suggestion that's, that that tells you the people who suggest it don't like the implications of the I, you know what this is this is hinky there's something hinky going on here I don't know what it is Abe see when it comes to science news that that's when I feel I, I feel a ton of sympathy with like sort of ordinary political news consumers you know, who who have a whole bunch of stories presented to them and aren't sure how to sort of wade through it. That That's, you know, me with science. And so but I have, so from having tried to read a lot about this stuff, especially during the first year or so of, of the pandemic, um, there's still, I have this question 
And again, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it because I never know what motivations are behind what source and, and how reliable they are when it comes to these things. But Jim, what about the, the assertion that there's something unique about the structure of the virus itself, right? Or something curious about it? Well, that's an even more kind of upstream question to ask about COVID. There are some features of the the um, of the virus that early on there was some research that made people wonder if that was an engineered feature. And I want to be very clear: this is not an allegation that it was intended as some kind of bio weapon. That's a, a sort of a fringe idea, but rather that in the course of doing of studying these viruses, they do make various manipulations to the viruses, and then they wait to see how those manipulations play out among among the animals they infect. And this is what they call gain-of-function research, super controversial for excellent reasons. One researcher says it's like looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. But uh, so, so that is a question, but the virus doesn't have to have been engineered in that fashion for it to have leaked from a lab. We also know that the Wuhan lab had uh, had grants to collect bats and collect sam samples of, of blood and other things from bats across this area where these uh, COVID-type illnesses are quite common in different bat populations. So they were, they were deliberately going out in the field and collecting as many suspect strains of, of uh, viruses as they could, unidentified viruses, and then researching them. So that alone could indicate that a, a natural strain was then passed through the population of bats or directly into uh, lab workers at the lab. Here's the thing, we just don't know. We do know that there was an active cover-up at the lab and that cover-up continues. So to say that, oh, we have all this evidence from looking at the early cases that it might've come from the market and maybe it did, you know, that's, that's still a very active possibility, but we don't have much evidence about what happened at the lab because no one's talking. <laughs> you know, the Chinese government isn't letting anybody close. They they've they shut down access to all the databases. So it's really, really important that we get a more open inquiry into this. It's premature to draw conclusions, but it's also premature to rule anything out. Noah, um, I've been having conversations over the last couple of days. You know, there were these two sort of like blockbuster survey discussion things. One about the serotonin theory of depression, uh, where, you know, uh, the British study suggests that the idea that depression is primarily or even exclusively a chemical imbalance relating to serotonin uh, was never true. Like it was never, it was a hypothesis. It was never proven. And we now have 25 years of treatment or more of treatment with serotonin uh, uh, inhibitors or uh, that, um, uh, or uh, reuptake inhibitors um, that suggest no particular net gain in the way to fight depression. Uh, that was one, and there's a second that is now escaping my head, another big sort of science, <laughs> um, not a debunking, but uh, something I'm, I'm feeling bad. Alzheimer's. 
Oh, Alzheimer's, right. That that basically all of science put its chips on this um, uh, idea about how about how Alzheimer's develops in the brain and billions of dollars were spent based on it. And the evidence and research into it may have been uh, openly, knowingly, and actively fraudulent. And thus, billions upon billions of dollars were wasted and opportunity costs for investigating different ways in which possibly to combat Alzheimer's were therefore never spent. Um, and I only bring this up not to say that I believe that people, you know, that uh, that there isn't that's that that uh, antidepressants don't work because I think they do in many cases that, and uh, or that you know people who wanted to follow this route on Alzheimer's weren't doing so out of good faith. I was just thinking that this, combined with everything that's gone on over the last two years, suggests that science has has science in general is understood has taken a terribly dangerous turn and that it's immodesty or the immodesty with which scientists and the people who cover science and the people who support science accept uh hard conclusions uh or ideas as evidence needs to stop and should and and there should have been vastly more modesty about these kinds of claims because this is why conspiracy theories happen. And people sort of understood this, that you shouldn't say, look, Alzheimer's is because aluminum is in the brain. Or, you know, you need, uh, look, if you're depressed, take, a, take an SSRI and that'll work. Because they don't know. They don't understand how the brain works. In both of those cases, the brain is a very opaque thing. We have very little understanding of how the brain works and it's multiple in all of the things that interact in it. And epistemic modesty used to be a key to understanding how scientists would approach what they did. Like it's one thing to discover a physical law of the universe, right? You're Newton and you discover a physical law of the universe and that is a law of the universe and it is unchanging. In these kinds of things where there are multiple things interacting, like the brain, emotions, the heart, the blood system, your body, whatever else, whatever predilections you may have from your genetic component makeup, uh, to say, okay, here's a fix, or to say, look, it can't be from the lab, or it can't, you know, like, you should say, we think there's a possibility that X is true, or this is something that's valuable and worth exploring, but we just don't know yet. And there's almost no, we just don't know, at least in the way it's written about. And then people get incredibly disappointed. People, people put their faith in it and the faith is not warranted. And if it hadn't been asked for in the first place, it would have been better. Now, now we have, people who have no reason to be skeptical of vaccines, totally skeptical of vaccines. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to sort of develop a thought here, which is that uh, we have a world awash in conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories are really dangerous. And the people, and but there is a responsibility on the part of authorities, particularly who, authorities who claim empirical support for their authority, to cool it and to be more modest and to be more ginger and sober in the way they report their results and the way they think about this, or is this a fantasy that, we, that they can, they can do this, they can back off. 
no, I, I don't have much to add to that. I think that's a pretty coherent um, theory of how this whole thing works. I can't actually speak to any of the science about it. My dad tried to get me to read a neurological book on the phenomenon of uh, phantom limbs when I was in high school, and I, <laughs> I couldn't couldn't get very much past the first chapter. It's it's very it's a distinct field that requires quite a lot of uh, study in order to understand, obviously. Um, but yeah, you went, you said the word faith in there, and uh, the reason why you introduced the articles of faith into this conversation is because, as you say, um, we're we're asked to believe. They're, they use the word believe. They use the word faith, and, and that's you know what Hayek called scientism, um, which isn't necessarily the evolutionary conduct of dispassionate analysis, but a, an article of of belief, and that works both ways because conspiracy theories are an article of faith, right? They're not falsifiable. They cannot be falsified, particularly in the minds of those who, who adhere to them. Um, so when you ask somebody to believe one thing based on uh, credentials or a series of uh, ar arguments that are not necessarily supported entirely, but generally look realistic, um, you're, you're introducing an element of, uh, of belief into that conversation and, and human beings are hardwired to believe particularly in things that don't necessarily have a empirical basis. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they've sowed the seeds of their own self-doubt in that sense. Well, Jim, hey. let me, let me, let me, okay, let me just ask you this. So, you know, we're talking about faith and belief. And so we have a world in which sort of like the scientific discoveries of the 19th and 20th centuries have eaten away at the, at, at a lot of the pillars of, of faith, which often seem to, explain things that were inexplicable and then suddenly we can explain more of them than anyone was able to before and this then removes the supernatural uh as a force and therefore the divine as a force in the minds of everybody else and then it leaves us blank without an explanation for the workings of the universe or for a lot of people and so you have this kind of brilliant turn toward investing that emotional faith in something that says don't you know that is anti-faith right in other words they say look you don't have to you know you you don't have to make pascal's wager and say god whatever there's god there's no god it doesn't matter here's here's how things work the the universe is a machine human ecology is a machine life is a machine we can if it's broke, we can fix it. If it's if it goes off the rails, we can put it back on the rails, and trust us because we are skilled and we we can see things, but we see things empirically. And to give people to tell people to have faith in empiricism is like a it's like a trifecta or a or whatever. What is a two thing if we're in betting? I can't remember because a trifecta is winning three bets. <laughs> No, like if you bet, if you win a trifecta, you win three bets. You make three bets and you win all three, and oh, then right, you hit right, the trifecta. Yeah. But there's got to be a duofecta. Well, the house would lose a lot if you had a, just a, a double. Yeah. Anyway, but so so it's like the perfect bounce shot because it's like use all the force of faith that, as Noah says, humans are hardwired to have. But you don't have to have you don't. But 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 it's not mysterious anymore. Just put our, put faith in us. We know. We know better than you. We're deep. We're, we know better because we're more educated and we understand the workings of these things. And we're going to fix it all for you. And then if you strip that away, 
then people have nothing. Like then they have cons- then, then the conspiracy theory comes in because they have nothing to believe in. Yeah, well, I've spent a lot of my career working on conspiracy theories, especially nine eleven conspiracy theories, and it's a it's a cast of mind that that satisfies some of the same urges, or that that satisfies some of the same uh, fixes some of the same problems for in people's lives that that religion does. But when you look at science, I would say that that science, as properly understood, the the classical enlightenment notion of how science should operate is engineered to resist appeals to faith, appeals to authority, and to be constantly, you know, engage in a constant process of self-critique. And that's what's important about peer review and the whole the whole process of science. But it, when you think about how science is practiced today in university or research lab settings, there are a lot of incentives to to keep that epistemic humility you mentioned, to not overstate your results. That's one reason journalists often find scientists kind of boring to interview because it's all qualifications. You know, We can't say this, we can't say that, we can only say this. But on the other hand, there's another set of incentives that leads to wanting to make a bigger claim. You know, If you have a paper that makes the, a broader claim for the role of serotonin in the effectiveness of SSRIs or something like that, that's a really useful and important finding. You're going to get cited in other other papers. And of course, the more you get cited in other papers, the better that is for your career and visibility. You're going to have a PR department at your university that really wants to get press for your finding. So they're going to take what you wrote with all of its qualifications. They're going to de-emphasize. Yeah, they're yeah. going to de-emphasize the qualifications. They're going to emphasize the strongest finding. And then some reporter, especially at the British newspapers, which are just notoriously bad on this stuff, uh, somebody's going to take that and say, you know, uh, so-and-so discovered a cure for cancer. You know, somebody found out that, you know, tumor growth is restricted 5% by some, you know, some drug or something like that. It's like, they cured cancer. This happens all the time. Scientists try to push back, but it's also good for their careers. They're going to get more funding. They're going to get more visibility. They're going to get more invitations to speak at conferences. So this is the version of science that often gets communicated to the public. And today it's compounded by the politicization of everything. You know, that almost everything now is seen in some kind of a political duality where uh, where some stories serve the narrative, other stories don't serve the narrative. So there's an incentive to be serving the narrative. We've seen that throughout COVID. So it doesn't just affect pure science or research science, it affects the applied science. I've written in commentary about how early on there was this real hostility towards treatments for COVID as opposed to vaccines and social distancing and all those kinds of measures. So vaccines didn't, I mean, treatments didn't get as much attention or potentially promising treatments got, they got exaggerated on one side, their effectiveness, they got poo-pooed too much on the other side. And when a real treatment like uh, Paxlovid came along, there was uh, not a whole lot of urgency initially among um, public health people to to put it to use. Today, now we're seeing a flip side of that. Paxlovid is probably being overused. But what I'm saying is that the you know I'm sympathizing with Abe here. As members of the public, it's just so hard to keep track of all of this because there are so many layers of people sort of trying to spin these stories in one direction or the other to serve all these 
other goals that go way, way beyond what does the science say? Before okay, we so get let, into let, the yeah. Paxlovid thing, because I think that's where we're going to go next, I don't want to introduce too much of a- elements of sympathy here for people who engage actively in an intellectual journey that leads them to conclusions that are false, uh, in part because they want to reach those conclusions. Uh, if you end up consuming the research around this, the origins of this disease and land in a position that leads you to be skeptical of MMR vaccines, that's your fault. No one did that to you. That's that's an active process that you engaged in. I was watching this HBO show documentary last night called The Anarchists, which is probably the a cult that I'm the most intellectually attracted to, because these people have done a lot of reading uh, from economists, from you know really genuinely uh, legitimate economists about scale and about you know organizations of society and what have you. And while they call themselves this radioactive word, they also have a really uh, a, a very comprehensive theory of social organization around it that's very attractive to somebody who's interested in limited government principles, what have you. But it doesn't take long for them to get around to the idea that they're a part of a family, that they have a mission, that they have belonging. And then it doesn't get around from there to start burning books, which is what they end up doing. Uh, so the process here is, is a pursuit of identity as much as it is a pursuit of the truth. I do think, though, that... Um... Conspiracy theories are also an act of faith because they presume a, they presume a logical uh, they presume that there is a secret code to the workings of the universe, right? So if you not to not to be incredibly like you know reductive about this, but uh, God to the pre-modern mind was the gap that explained the inexplicable, or however you want to the divine was the gap that explained how. And the conspiracy theory does that as well. So something is inexplicable uh, to you. How did the planes get through? How how did the planes hit the World Trade Center? How could this have happened? How could nineteen people at the same time? And they were they knew that they were, someone was at the Florida Flight School, and you know, the, the blah blah blah. There was a wall between the FBI and the CIA. All this, all of that happened for a reason. It's not that ten catastrophic things happen independently that somehow came together mysteriously at one moment to create this horrible event. It is that it was by design because to think that it wasn't by design is even more terrifying than to think, you know, that it was by accident because then everything is on, nothing can be sure. You can't be, you know, you don't know, in other words, if you get hit by a car and you can say, well, the car meant to hit me, that's in some odd way better than the idea that you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then the universe is inexplicable, terrifyingly random. You're a victim of something random rather than something designed to punish you or to hurt you or to you know pay you back or to be unjust to you. And that's an even more terrible kind of thing. And in that sense to the extent that these ideas are made more palatable by the assertion of knowledge on the part of experts who don't have it. And then you follow their dictates and you follow their guidelines. This is the public health crisis of the last two years. And you know what? You lock down, you do this, you do that. And a million people still die of COVID and your kids don't go to school and they're behaviorally screwed up and they're two years behind intellectually, and they're two years behind emotionally, and all of that. And it can't just be 
that all the, these terrible things happen just because of a random series of mistakes or error, whatever, well-meaning. They had to know they were doing it and they did it on purpose. There's also, um, I mean, I think it's recently, especially in the rise of the, all the recent conspiracy theories and the way they're thrown around and promoted online. The other aspect of, of conspiracy theories that I think that are valuable to, to those who hold them is that it does a tremendous amount for your ego um, because all, while you're, while you end up professing this absurd belief, it's entirely couched in skepticism. You, it's all about how you don't believe the official story. You don't believe the experts. You don't believe that. At, meanwhile, at the same time, you're out there believing far more fantastical um, right. situations, and they claim to be skeptics. And this is a particular problem of our age in that you can then go and grab a thousand different studies, and they, they look like real studies, that they, especially to the layperson who, who's not in the habit of reading studies. You can, they look like you know, proper uh, uh, institutional documents. And to to support your to support your theory, and and you erect this sort of alternate intellectual edifice that you stand, and you're all proud of it. Um, there's there's a so it's another aspect of how it rewards or how it sort of soothes the the, the powerless. You know, um, before Alex Jones, uh, there was a guy on late night radio. Uh, I it was an insomniac and uh, but also something I would hear driving in the West. If you were driving long distances in the West, there was a guy on called Art Bell and Art Bell was a late love, night. Love host, him. Right. And love Art him. Bell was alien. It was mostly aliens. Time travelers. Right. But and he interviewed these people in the world of alternative science let's say where it's aliens are doing this and the the there's the various other things and what was so fascinating about it was how the language they used a little sort of the way the book of mormon is a kind of bizarre adaptation in english though i know mormons believe it was translated from this ancient language using seeing stones but this this sort of brilliant kind of mashup of king the king james bible's english so they would talk about these absolutely batshit crazy things but they would do it in scientific jargon it was like well in our study we point out that you know at 281 degrees longitude and 11 degrees latitude um there is a a what 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 we scientists call a hot spot where the ozone layer has a hole and you therefore the aliens beam through the hole it was always couched they would they would discern that they would claim this kind of argle bargle support uh using empirical language for these hilarious claims and that's again also where science so I only bring this up to say that um, everybody wants to use science. Like everybody wants to claim empiricism as their source to explain whatever it is, because it gives them 
academic or, you know, authority beyond the simple assertion of, you know, what they saw with the evidence of their own eyes, or they claim to have seen with the evidence of their own eyes. But a lot of science is like this too, in part what Jim was talking about, which is you find some possible correlation, a three or 4% correlation between X behavior and Y horrible health result. And that over time by degrees turns into causation. The thing of which there is a, you, your, your odds increase from 1% to 3% of getting cancer because of X, suddenly that's a 300% increase in the, you know, the possibility that you'll get cancer, which it isn't. It's a 300% increase off a of base. And then, but people don't know. And over time, this all mutates into uh, a very dangerous set of presumptions about, you know, how you know that things are bad for you or how you know what, what it is to avoid or something like that. There are very few things on earth like cigarettes, right? There are very few things on earth in which you can say, we basically have a century's worth of, of data that says if you smoke, you are vastly more likely to get cancer and heart disease if you smoke than if you don't. And we have hundreds of millions of people you know, on the planet as, you know, people who don't smoke and people who do, and here are the results of people who smoke and here are the people results of people who don't, but not for hardly anything else. Like that's about it. There's almost nothing, no other behavior that people engage in where you have that kind of relative certainty that cigarettes caught that smoking cigarettes causes cancer because also in any individual person's body, they won't, they don't. It's just over the, you know, if you're, you know, you're, you're, you have no idea whether you're that person or not. You can't know whether you're the person who for some reason is resistant. Like I got, I have three kids. I've, my wife and I, right? Four of us, triply vaxxed, quadruply vaxxed, da, 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 da. We got COVID after being double vaxxed. And then I got one kid, nothing. Hasn't gotten COVID. Hasn't gotten anything. He's also, you know, quadruply, whatever, nothing. Why? I don't know why. Maybe he'll still get it. I don't know. Maybe he got it and we don't know. But I mean, that's life. Like, it's not knowable. There's a lot that's not knowable. Maybe in 200 years it'll be knowable. But it's not knowable now. And then we pretend it is. And then we listen to Anthony Fauci, who is the villain of the piece here, because he acts as though he says, do this and X bad thing isn't going to happen to you. And it turns out that's wrong. Because if you do this, X bad thing may happen to you, but think about what you, what you haven't done because he told you not to do it. Was it worth the risk? Was, was that worth the cost? But they talk like they know. Jim. The problem with this exaggeration of authority, and we've seen this from public health officials throughout the pandemic, is the backfire effect. When we see the, you know, Fauci and others making claims that stretched way beyond what they really knew about, uh, you know, the efficacy of masks or the efficacy of masks or all these different things, we, 
you know, it's an understandable urge. They want to nudge the public in the right direction. But again and again, we later learned that they didn't really know what they were talking about. Or they were going on hunches or old biases. And that went in both directions. They also were really slow to admit that, it, that COVID's passed through the air and that it's airborne. And they resisted a lot of that science. So the public saw that and that eroded trust across the board, and which is so much harder to restore in the end. So as you say, with regard to conspiracy theories, when the people in charge act like they're hiding something or they're not fully forthcoming or they're not admitting embarrassing things that maybe challenge their position a little bit, that's when you really open the door to these conspiracy theories, which do offer a kind of of certainty and you know a kind of moral clarity that the big shots are always lying and they are corrupt and you if, if you you know do your own research in the phrase then you you can you can find the way to the truth which is almost always the opposite of whatever the people in charge are saying that's a really insidious you know on a, on a small level it's a healthy urge be be skeptical ask questions don't believe everything but when it becomes a lifestyle it's it's incredibly dangerous and when it infects our politics it undermines all kinds of things that we really really need and i think that you were now we're seeing you mentioned the paxlovid thing earlier we're seeing that now uh, you go online that now there's skepticism around this very effective treatment because we don't fully understand it doesn't right. always work and now now we got yet another wave of people saying see they're always lying to us okay so let's let's go to that because of course we have this you know ultimate test case in the united states president of the united states 79 year old man gets covid uh isolates gets paxlovid five days later six days later test negative comes out over the course of this he says you see I was vaccinated. Trump nearly died, had to be flown to Walter Reed. I didn't. Ha ha ha. And then two days later or three days later, uh, test positive for COVID again, goes back into isolation. Uh, so what, what, what wisdom are we to take from what happened to Biden? I mean, I think the wisdom that people are going to take from what happened to Biden is don't take Paxlovid. I, I mean, I, I think if you have a, if you have the president of the United States as a test case, he took Paxlovid and then he got it again two days later. Uh, you're not going to take Paxlovid if you get sick. That's my guess. I you just think millions yeah. of people are going to say, I'm not going to take it because look what happened to him. Now, we don't really understand what happened to him and we'll never get the full story. Did they screw up on the test where he tested negative? Did they give him a rapid instead of a, a, you know, a PCR and the rapid came up negative, but it was a false negative and he still had it. And then he got a PCR and it was positive. I don't know. I, I don't know. But if well, it's complicated, yeah. okay. it's complicated because PCR tests will return a positive result long after you're not infectious. Uh, right. Whereas the rapid tests are pretty good at, at telling He's you, saying you don't have it. You're clear. At, you're clean. Uh, if a negative test on either one doesn't necessarily mean there's no lingering trace of the virus. The question is, is it there at a level that can make you sick or be transmitted to others? What we do know is that Paxlovid rebound is a real thing. And there's a big debate right now. Is it 
1% of cases, 5% of There's some studies out saying maybe it's 3 5%. A lot of people in the field think it's a lot higher than that. And that raises the question of who really needs this drug. It is really effective at keeping unvaccinated people out of the right. hospital, out of the ICU. Is it necessary for young, healthy, multiply vaxxed people? Probably, you know, if it was my, one of, you know, somebody in my family who was under 60 and healthy, and I'm not a doctor, this is not medical advice, but I, I think that it's not necessary. When I had uh, COVID a few months ago, I did take it and it, you know, and I got better fast, but my wife also had it. She didn't take it. She got better just as fast. I don't know okay, if well, it here's, for me. Okay, so Biden took it gets a negative three days later, gets a positive. Fauci took it, said it made him feel way worse. He also got a rebound. Okay. My father, 92 and a half, got COVID two months ago or a month ago, felt terrible, took Paxlovid, felt much worse, got over it, hasn't had a rebound case. But if Paxlovid isn't effective, now, all, in all these cases, these are people who were who had four shots, not not unvaccinated people. Right. Maybe he shouldn't have taken Paxlovid. He felt lousy. But the rebound doesn't yeah. mean you're. No, but he hasn't effective. had a rebound. Okay, he but, hasn't had a rebound. But what do we know about COVID? People get it and they get over it. He's ninety-two and a half, so maybe he needed to take Paxlovid because he's in the highest risk possible category. But it didn't make him feel better, and it did not, based on timetables, seem to cure, cure it faster than he would have been cured otherwise. We don't know. He didn't feel so bad that he had to go into the hospital. He didn't go into the hospital. But you know, it's hard to it's hard to argue against a, a hypothetical. How much worse yeah. might he have been without it? Right. We don't, we don't, we don't know. know. That's always the problem. But you know, if. If the rebounding is a real thing and the Paxlovid itself can have a deleterious effect as you're taking it, you know, then you start getting into the, the questions of if you have a 25% chance of getting a rebound test and that while you're taking Paxlovid, though this didn't happen to you, Jim, you feel twice, you feel horrible. Why would you take Paxlovid? I I, I, so, I don't know. And then that gets back to the Trump story. Trump was treated. There were no vaccines. Trump got remdesivir, I believe. And he was better in three days. And everybody, pardon my French, shat on remdesivir and on hydroxychloroquine. And I have, I have uh, anecdotal, I know five or six people who did hydroxychloroquine and it cleared the COVID right up. And there's this whole thing about how, oh, you shouldn't take hydroxychloroquine, blah, 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 blah. It's a malaria. It's, it's a, it, it is a medication that was prescribed for respiratory illnesses. This wasn't like taking a horse pill that somebody sold you at a medicine show. It's just interesting because of, again, the kind of epistemic certainty that said we weren't supposed to believe that there were treatments until there was a vaccine. There was something irresponsible about the idea that there were treatments before there was a vaccine, but there was a treatment. And one of the reasons that they wanted to tell us that there wasn't a treatment is that if there turned out to be an effective treatment, like if remdesivir was actually an effective treatment, they didn't have enough. There wasn't enough on the planet Earth to treat people 
to treat millions and millions of people with COVID. So then you were going to have like a run on remdesivir. It's like everything is really hard to to sort through. But hey, so well, I mean, that's just it. There's so much imprecision around all of this. You're talking about the tests. None of it works the way in a pre-COVID world we had popularly assumed these things work. Um, so you take a test. It'll tell you if you have something, you don't have something. Now, well, a positive doesn't mean that you still have it. A negative doesn't mean that you don't have it. Um, we have a vaccine that doesn't really mean you don't get infected. We have treatments that could induce rebound infections. All of this breeds such disorientation and uh, suspicion, you know. Um, pair this with the, the, the lack of humility on the part of, of the officials. And, the, and throw in, as we mentioned before, the sort of the drifting in of these stories of the overturning of, of long-standing medical consensus about, you know, uh, uh, Alzheimer's and, and uh, antidepressant medication and whatever. It's like, well, okay, after 40 years of, of uh, SSRI, treatments and studies. Now we have this, this conclusion that, that there's no connection between serotonin and, and depression. Why am I, why, why after six months of, of hydroxychloroquine studies, would I ever think that anything is conclusive there? That's not new, right? False, uh, flawed conclusions or even falsified studies, you know, the Wakefield study, for example, and, and the literal wake that it left. I mean, that's not new. That happens. That's the evolutionary process of science. And, and, and indeed, sometimes corruption is involved because these are human beings engaged in human affairs. And sometimes human beings are corrupt, but it's the defensiveness on the part of the scientific establishment that resents the conclusions you might draw from that or just is afraid of the conclusions that you might draw from that, that doesn't allow you to doesn't doesn't trust you enough to understand the process and then elides what that process is. Yeah, but there's two there's two important uh, caveats to what you're talking about. The first of which is, as Jim said, science is supposed to be self-correcting. But then you create this infrastructure, financial and reputational infrastructure for the support of science. And that interferes with the self-correction because often the gatekeepers are the people whose initial conclusions have to be challenged by peer review. This is what happened in the Alzheimer's case. There's an Alzheimer's theory. The guy who adduced the Alzheimer's theory becomes a leading figure in the field and kind of actively suppresses, he and his colleagues who wrote this first paper, actively suppress alternate theories of the origins and treatment of Alzheimer's because they sit on panels and they give speeches and they work on magazines and they can actually put their finger on the scale to support their original hypothesis. So the self-correcting element of science, which is key to science, is interfered with. The second is that you say it's nothing new, but science doesn't tell you that there's nothing new with the fact that studies are often flawed. According to a, you know, according to the Journal of Irre Reproducible Results, 
something like two thirds of all studies that social science and hard science studies that are done are are, are irreproducible. Meaning you don't know whether the result was flawed or uh, or whether it was fraudulently come at or whether the data was really inconclusive. But if you play with the data a little bit, you can make it seem more conclusive. You get no points for doing a study that comes out inconclusively, except maybe you should. Because if you do a study that's inconclusive, what you're then saying is don't go down this road. I've just done this study. I've spent two years. I got $2 million from NIH. And it turns out that the theory I have really didn't bear fruit. So don't go down this path I went down. Let me be at, let, I'm a cautionary tale. Stop. Don't go this way. Go some other way. They don't do that because then they fail. They're announcing their failure. And the idea that that failure is valuable doesn't do anything for their personal reputations. <coughs> so we have this problem that the that the, the goalkeepers are also playing the game. The scorekeepers, excuse me, or the umps are actually in the game. You know, they're Aaron Judge. He needs a 61st homer. And there's one on the foul line, and he calls it for himself so he can get the 61st homer. Jim, you're not liking. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not liking the. Uh, I'm not liking the analogy okay. because there really aren't. Should not be umpires in science. Science is more like a free for all game where anybody can challenge you. You know, if you publish a paper claiming that the sky is blue because uh, Van Gogh sprayed paint in the sky. You know, somebody else can come along and and challenge that paper. And that antagonistic process is built into science. It's it is encouraged. And the failures that we're seeing are often cases where a certain contingent, a certain body of thought gets gets too entrenched or too powerful, often for reasons that go beyond pure science. It often has to do with, re with questions of policy. So, and, you know, or funding. So it is, you know, science is vulnerable to that kind of thing. But why are we even talking about these issues, talking about things like the replication uh, crisis in so the social, social sciences? It's because scientists are bringing this to the attention of their their peers. So it's not a perfect system, but it's okay. still self-correcting. And and it is that's why we're talking about these things is because maybe too late, maybe it took too long, but people are finally saying, wait a minute, this study doesn't hold up. It doesn't matter how influential it was. It's it doesn't look right. Let's start over. But a lot of damage can be done between you know, bet between the um, the uh, you know between the reality and the false idea, the shadow can be very dark. You know, it really it really can. Um, uh, anyway, let let let's move on quickly because th we this went into a place I didn't expect it to go. We have two specific things we wanted to talk to you about, and then one of them is uh, the uh, Mansion Schumer climate change. Uh, no inflation, spend $700 billion and reduce the deficit and kill inflation with a lot of public spending bill. So let's talk about that and chips both, uh, which is the $260 billion 
let's build a domestic semiconductor industry by giving in, Intel a lot of money from the federal government, like Intel needs money. Uh, what do you what do you make of this of the sciency parts of these two uh, of these two pieces of incredibly expensive uh, legislation adding up to a, a trillion dollars and suddenly we're like well that isn't that much this yeah. is this is where we've gotten to you know it's a look yeah so i've always kind of disliked the talk of the overton window but this is a great example of the overton window if you start at three trillion you know and 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 now you say oh well it's relatively affordable compared to what they, they were originally asking for i also when i look at the inflation reduction act the the arrogance that you can just slap a name on something and people will buy it it, you know, they called the Inflation Reduction Act IRA. At the same time, everyone's referring to it as a climate bill. I feel like just make up your minds. You know, do you even know what your what your goals are here? Then if you put these two things together, what you see is a return to the 80s, 90s, uh, kind of holy grail for a lot of people on the left of some kind of industrial policy. The market doesn't know how to fix problems. We need to be smart. We need to plan, have put the smart people in charge, figure out where the investment should go, figure out what our social goals should be, and, and have the government spend all this money to steer industry in the right direction. I'm not opposed to that around the edges here and there. Uh, you know, in some cases, the fracking business industry in the U.S. was partly jump-started from some tax breaks and investments that, that the federal government did make in, in helping encourage that technology. And then it was able to take off and survive on its own. So that can happen. And there's some of that in this climate bill. There's some money for R&D. Uh, and I think you can make a case for that, especially R&D that's done at the national labs where you're not just handing money out to private companies. But what I see in the climate bill as a whole is a massive amount of spending that's labeled climate spending. And yet again and again, when you look closely, you see they're not that serious about the, the goals that they're setting. Uh, for example, you know, we're gonna, we want to, we want to spend nearly 400 billion on climate but we also want to require that people use union workers and pay prevailing wages and do all these other things that that make it more expensive so if you if you want to build the maximum number of wind turbines in the shortest amount of time wouldn't you want to do it the cheapest way or are you willing to say oh actually no let's build a third less and spend an extra third on rewarding uh rewarding the unions the biggest part that they're in there that worries me is not getting that much attention. It's the environmental justice requirements. From the get-go, the Biden administration has said it has had this initiative that 40% of any spending on environmental or climate-related um, policies needs to go to marginalized communities that have theoretically been then targeted unfairly to carry an unfair burden of pollution and climate change impacts. So how is that money going to get spent? If all of a sudden you're saying, okay, we need to spend 40% of the money in certain communities that we're going to pick, then is that the place where you can do the most to reduce climate change? Is that the place where the money is going to be spent most effectively? 
in some cases, if you're reducing pollution, that is going to benefit urban, you know, if you're reducing particulate pollution from diesel motors, that's going to have a huge impact in inner city neighborhoods. That's great. But if you start off by saying, let's find a way to spend a few billion dollars in these inner city neighborhoods and then go around looking for problems to spend it on, that money is not going to get spent well. It's not going to reduce the problems effectively. And this bill seems to have an awful lot of that kind of targeting, which is much less about climate than it is about a uh, progressive social justice agenda. I think I'll elaborate this uh, on this a little bit more in a post because it needs more fleshing out. But over the weekend, if you were privy to any media, you've uh, you've heard that Republicans are horrible people who want veterans to die. Uh, that's a, it's approximately the level of analysis that we've been hearing from mainstream media figures and former comedian John Stewart, who happens to be on every channel now, uh, raging at the Republicans who support quote the war machine and not veterans themselves. It's very emotional, an appeal to emotion. Because this uh, bill uh, called the Honoring Our Pact Act uh, uh, subsequently did not get a cloture vote, didn't survive cloture vote in the Senate. Um, and the Democratic reaction is that Republicans are just being vicious at the very least at the, the most charitable explanation from uh, Senator Murphy, Chris Murphy, is that uh, Republicans are acting in a fit of pique. Uh, they're frustrated over the fact that the CHIPS Act uh, managed to pass. And also they subsequently got a reconciliation deal that hasn't yet become anything resembling legislation, but there's a deal and they were going to hold up chips if there was a reconciliation deal, blah, 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 blah. The bottom line is this vote failed after it had gotten a cloture vote in June. Uh, a lot of Republicans who voted against it this time did support it then. And it, because it had to have a technical vote, revote in the Senate because there was some additional revenue added and the revenue has to start in the House. Again, this is very complicated and it's designed so that you won't understand what happened here. They don't want you to understand what happened here. What happened here is that Senator Toomey, who voted against this, Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, who voted against this twice, objected because on top of the, the spending for veterans, there was an additional roughly $390 billion over 10 years that would be spent uh, in non-discretionary spending. It was mandatory spending, meaning that it will be spent whether whether it's authorized or not. But it wasn't de de dedicated okay, to wait, Veterans stop. Affairs. Let me just stop you. Let me just stop you for a second. There are two kinds of spending, right? There is discretionary spending. Which the House and, and the Senate both have to appropriate on an annual basis. Right. So discretionary spending is spending that has been approved in legislation, but has not yet been paid for. And appropriations bills have to pass to pay for approved legislation. And then you can argue about offsets. And there's, a, there's a bunch of money that is that is not spent uh, by mandate. And that's much of the federal but the things that we talk about. And then there's mandatory spending, which are primarily the entitlements. Happens every year, Medicare. grows every year. Right. That's invest right. that's uh, interest right. payments on the right. debt. That's uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and some other spending. Military spending, right. for example, some discretionary some, spending. Some military spending is is, is mandatory. Some Almost not. all military spending is discretionary spending. Right. Almost all this Pentagon yeah. budget is discretionary right. spending. Okay. That's all people so talk about. They we were converting... Spending. $300 billion of a certain type of spending from discretionary to mandatory through this addendum to this legislation, which was about treating veterans who were near fire pits. Correct. So go on. Okay. Yeah. So most of this and Senator Toomey's objection is that 
some of this, uh, maybe 300 some odd billion dollars, almost $400 billion dollars. Uh, were modified so that they could be, it could be non-discretionary spending, but it's not to get dedicated to anything. It will be spent, but it's not devoted to anything. So it's basically a blank check of mandato- mandatory spending, which Congress will subsequently fill up with uh, whatever they want to spend it on, whatever lard they want, whatever constituencies they want to reward. And his objection was, leave this, leave this $280 billion for Veterans Affairs for this particular cause in non-discretionary spending. Let it be mandatory spending that we don't have to appropriate every year. Fine. But let's modify it to keep the other 390 billion spending uh, out. Let's let's cut that or at least offer an amendment so that we could vote on it on an annual basis. And Senator Toomey said he's not getting this amendment. He's not getting this vote from, from uh, Senator Schumer. Uh, and it's important that obviously that we fix this budgetary gimmick uh, and Democrats wanted to have this vote in order to have this news cycle. This will be resolved. This issue will not will be fixed. Uh, and all the Republicans who who voted for this under cloture uh, or, or voted for this in June and didn't vote it for it for it now, according to the Washington Post, have been subsequently convinced because Pat Toomey has been on a lobbying crusade for trying to argue his his fellow colleagues into adopting his position, which was this spending that is not devoted to anything right now shouldn't be there. And that seems eminently reasonable. But the narrative that you're being fed is that these Republicans couldn't possibly have been convinced by a salient and sound argument. They have to be motivated by other forces, nefarious forces, because they hate veterans or they hate spending or whatever the nonsense is that they're trying to peddle. And it's just, it makes our politics far more toxic. This was a gambit on the part of Democratic leadership. Now, maybe they had a big opportunity here that was too delicious to pass up. I get that. That's hardball politics, but it's politics nonetheless. And the notion here that only Republicans are playing with this uh, with this uh, veteran's very important benefit that just about everybody agrees on in principle, uh, that they're just playing politics with it right now, is trash because the, there's politics being played on both sides of this spectrum here. Okay, I got two things to say. Number one, I was watching World News tonight on ABC, the highest rated newscast on Thursday or something like that. And the way it was phrased, it was like, John Stewart has a message for Republican senators. And then it's like John Stewart standing there yelling about Republicans killing veterans. John Stewart left The Daily Show eight years ago. Eight Years ago, John Stewart left The Daily Show. He has a talk show on Netflix or Apple or something like that. The last I heard, 40,000 people were watching that show a week. The answer with John Stewart. John Stewart used to be funny. He is no longer funny. He used to be interesting. It's called the problem with John Stewart. The problem with John Stewart. And what's interesting about this is he chose to leave a show. He chose to do whatever he's doing. He made a movie. Nobody, he made two movies. Nobody saw directed and wrote two movies. Nobody saw. Um, he's a has been, he's like, he has fallen off the a list. He has done nothing of any cultural moment in almost a decade. He gets coverage on the nightly news for standing in front of the Capitol yelling at a Senator. All this dramaturgy was engineered. I know, but it's also like, get somebody better. Like, get Leonardo DiCaprio. At least people, like, know who Leonardo DiCaprio is. 
This would be like in my would be like you know having Jack Parr in 1982 come out and complain about Alar. At least when they were doing Alar, they got Meryl Streep, who was an A-list star, like John Stewart. My whole John? problem with this whole with this okay. entire thing is that it, it's an utterly dependent on a friendly media environment. In the absence of that environment, this would not play. In fact, it'd be kind of cloying uh, because you'd actually have to include the counter narrative. But these appeals to emotion work, and and all of a sudden, John Stewart is on every news show, in, t- in in part because they don't want you to understand the facts of the story. It's just raw appeals to emotion. This was the whole play all along, and it's obnoxious. No, so John Stewart has been doing this fire pit thing for a burn pit thing, for I, a and I don't years. question his motives. I think he's quite. I sincere. don't question his motives either. What I question is. Why does anybody why does anybody think that anybody cares what Jon Stewart, who has a show on streaming that literally nobody in America is watching? More people listen to this pot will listen to this podcast today than will watch Jon Stewart's The Problem. Now, I would love to think that that means that we are a central force in American culture, but I assure you, if I went and stood outside the Senate building and started yelling, about the about the chips bill world news tonight would not come cover me so you know like the system of using celebrities to make hay has broken down because they used to actually have to have like an oscar winning actor complaining that the dye on apples was giving people cancer and now you can have a has-been cable comedy show you know, high school graduate yelling at you. But I don't think he's he's not there as the celebrity. He's switched careers. He's the activist. But again, you know, there are activists who have a bigger following than he does. As I say, so, you know, if you want to follow, remember I said it was like if Jack Parr complained about Alar. So this would be like if you pulled... Uh, Mark Rudd of the students for a democratic society to come out and complain about, you know, global warming. Like nobody can that. It's just weird. That's number one. Number two, the other point I want to make is, um, you know, we're told we're ruled by gerontocracy and it's true. Mitch McConnell, very, very impressive political figure over many years, obviously had this, these great successes uh, being like cold and phlegmatic and just pushing through the, judicial nominees he wanted and you know just being cold-eyed and all of that well mitch mcconnell is not having a good uh summer mitch mcconnell spring summer mitch mcconnell got played on chips because he agreed to allow the passage of the chips bill and then five hours later got waylaid and surprised by the announcement of the mansion schumer uh, climate change thing which he had basically said he would block and not let uh, he would block the chips bill if they tried to bring up this reconcile this this bill again, and so they passed it and then they brought it up. So he got played, and then it appears somebody in the Republican Senate leadership did a really bad job when this bill, the burn pit bill, was in you know was passed the first time, uh, in not analyzing the text of the bill, because Toomey's objection is to the bill as it was originally written. They happen to get a second bite at the apple, as Noah said, having to pass it again for complicated reasons. 
but they actually voted for the bill with this conversion of the of the discretional discretionary spending into mandatory spending in the spring because somebody the people who are supposed to pay attention to the language didn't pay attention to the language then and it just passed and that's on McConnell who runs the Republican caucus in the Senate and whoever it is that is supposed to make sure that things aren't slipping in that shouldn't be there uh, didn't do their job. And McConnell is the person who, you know, has to somehow shoulder the blame or his structure does. Something is not working right there. And he is closing in on 80. And, you know, I'm sorry, like there's just there the people there's time and a place for things. And I don't know that he's you know, we there there's reason in these two things to say that his leadership may now be something that people should be taking a look at in terms of the overwhelming competence that he has shown as Senate majority and minority leader up up to this point. Anyway, having said that, Jim Meggs, thank you so much for joining us. Look, we look forward to your piece in the upcoming September issue of Commentary on Nuclear Power. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. So for the absent Christine and for Noah and Abe, I'm John Bodhoritz. Keep the camel burning.